This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Jamshid Afnan, a Baha'i from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, and Vice President of Information Services for ISO New England an independent system operator that coordinates, controls, and monitors the operation of the electrical power system for New England. Jamshid is a descendant from the family of the Persian prophet founder of the Babi faith titled the Bab, spelled B-A-B, which means gate in Arabic. In 1844, the Bab declared his mission as the one announcing the coming of He whom God shall make manifest. Baha'is believe that this is a reference to Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. The Bob's life was quite miraculous and resembled the life of Christ in many ways, including his dramatic martyrdom. I started the interview by asking Jamshid to give a brief synopsis on the Babi religion and its prophet founder, the Bab. Uh, in May 23, 1844, in the city of Shiraz in southern Iran, a new prophet, a new manifestation of God, declared himself to be the Messiah. And his teachings were quite revolutionary, uh, calling, uh, among other things, for the equality of um, women and men. And the clergy and the government officials, uh, ultimately by the pressure of the clergy, they rose against him and his followers. However, his faith grew like wildfire. Even the king who had sent his own representative, a cleric, to investigate the teachings of this new manifestation, new prophet, his uh, title is the Bob, uh, converted himself and became one of the avid believers to Bob and wrote to the king telling him that he should give up his crown and become servant to the new upcoming Messiah. Uh, However, the fierce opposition of the clerics and the clergy, Islamic clergy, uh, ultimately uh, caused an uprising and Bob himself uh, was put to death in 1852, and a fierce opposition to his followers caused a minimum of uh, 30,000 to be put to death throughout uh, Iran and parts of Ottoman Empire, which is today could be the country of Iraq, that these events were taking place. And ultimately, the Bob was the forerunner of the... Uh, next manifestation of God, which he had declared was the Baha'u'llah, which is the uh, founder of the Baha'i faith as it is practiced today. Mm -hmm. I'm related to Bob through my ancestor. I'm actually related to Bob through my my mother and through my father. Uh, Through my father, my uh, father's mother, my grandmother, was the granddaughter of the oldest uncle of Bob. And Bob himself had one son 
who died as in infancy, so there are no direct descendants of Bob. And through my mother, I'm related to the wife of the Bob. Uh, the brother of the wife of the Bob would be my ancestor that is the closest related uh, to, the fam- mm-hmm. to the holy family of Bob. Mm-hmm. The middle uncle of Bob, who raised Bob, uh, ultimately he's the first person that accepted the fate of Bob after the letters of living. And the letters of the living are? Letters of the living are the f- first 18 disciples that without investigation, with, by their own investigation, without being thought anything about the teachings of Bob or existence of Bob, they came and searched them and found them. Mm-hmm. And the letters of living comes from the Arabic word high, which means living. And numerical value of high is 18, and 18 was the number of those individuals and that is why Bob gave him the title, Letters of the Living, or in Arabic, Hurufahai, or meaning Letters of 18 or Letters of Living. So they're the, so Those they're are the, the first equivalent. 18. If we make a comparison to Christianity, it would be similar to the 12 disciples of Christ. Okay, okay. And the oldest uncle of Bob uh, was taught by the, the youngest one and the last letter of the living, a certain... Uh, individual by the name of Mullah Muhammad Ali Barfarushi. Uh, many of the Baha'is know him by his title, Quddus. And he taught the oldest uncle, middle uncle of Bob, who had risen Bob as a parent because Bob's father died when Bob was only nine years old. Mm-hmm. And he's the first believer to Bob after the rest of the, uh, after the letters of the living. Mm-hmm. And clearly the most, among the most distinguished relatives of Bob because of the quality of his devotion and his belief. And ultimately, he himself uh, was put to death uh, in 1850, prior to the Bob being put to death. His uncle, a few months earlier, was put to death. Mm -hmm. I find the life of the Bob, which means uh, the gate, the Bob's real name was? Sayyid Ali Muhammad. Mm -hmm. And his life is an incredible parallel to the life of Jesus. There are immense parallels between the life of the Bob and the life of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, among them is that they were both were very charismatic individuals. They were both put to death in a very violent way at the prime of their age, you know, relatively being young individuals. Uh, Bob was only 31 years old when he was uh, put to death. And of course, both being the prophet of God, manifestation of God, and, and declaring uh, holy, revealing holy books, some 26,000 verses, I believe, was revealed by Bob. Mm-hmm. And also, even their martyrdom was, so, they ref- the effects of what happened after their martyrdom? Yes, and in both cases, uh, in the case of Bob, which is much closer, so the, the facts are much clearer, a wind started blowing through the city of Tabriz where Bob had been uh, martyred, and it caused the, uh, the sun, which, which Bob was put to death at the hour of noon, and the dark cloud caused the sun to disappear from the sky and terrified the inhabitants 
after his martyrdom, mm. similar to the events after the crucifixion of Christ. Mm. How far back does your family go as far as being Baha'is? Well, as far as being Baha'is, as you know, Baha'u'llah declared his mission on 1863 in the city of Baghdad in a garden uh, called Rezwan or a, a paradise. However, Baha'u'llah was in exile and he was ultimately exiled to Constantinople and then following that to Adernople. From Adernople, he sent three representatives to Iran to pass the news of his declaration to the Babis or followers of Bab. And one of those three was uh, a famous Baha'i historian by the name of Nabil. And Nabil came to Shiraz, the city of the, where Bob was living and his relatives were living. And he came and talked to the members of the family. As a result of his talks, many accepted the fate of Baha'u'llah, including the wife of the Bob, which accept, accepted without question immediately, and many other members. And the oldest uncle of Bob, as you know, the middle uncle had been killed. The oldest uncle and the youngest uncle, he had only three uncles, uh, had not accepted the fate at that time. And the oldest uncle uh, ultimately had some number of questions uh, that he asked those questions, and those questions were really about the prophecy of Bob, not Baha'u'llah. And the number of those questions were five. He had given those questions to Baha'u'llah. Chronologically, I jumped back and forth a little bit here. And in Baha'u'llah, in 1862, just prior to Baha'u'llah's declaration, a book which called the Book of Certitude was revealed, which is really very interesting. It is the first time on its own because one manifestation of God, one prophet, is proving the existence uh, of another prophet, the Bab. And so he had a great deal of love for Baha'u'llah, and ultimately he accepted the Baha'i faith after that. But that is how majority of the families uh, joined the cause of Baha'u'llah. However, I'd like to share with you a slightly different story. My grandfather, which was not a member of the uh, Bob's family, uh, the story of how he accepted the faith may be of interest. Uh, he was a young teenager, maybe 18, 19 years of age. And uh, he heard it through some of his friends about the coming of the new faith and ultimately accepted the Baha'i faith and became a Baha'i. However, he was coming from a very orthodox Muslim family. And he was the only son of a relatively well-off merchant. And his father was not about to tolerate his son joining the infidels as he viewed it. So he punished them very hard. And the result of the punishment was that uh, he spent many months in bed with broken bones because he had been physically beaten up so badly. And the, his father himself also got ill as a result of beating his son and the agitation that he went through. And the net result was that after they both were healed, uh, his son hadn't changed his mind yet. So this time he tried to take a different tact with my great-grandfather. And his approach was that he will sit down and argue with his son and prove to him that he may be going uh, doing the wrong thing. And the result of those discussions was uh, that 
my grandfather convinced his father <laughs> of the truth of the cause. Mm. Upon accepting the cause, his soul was if, as if it was on fire. He gave away all his wealth to his son, almost as a way of thank you, and asked him to send him a little stipend. And he left Persia, which he was, their family was living in the Sea of Esfahan at that time, and moved to Holy Land and lived. And at, when he arrived into Akka, Baha'u'llah had been banished to Akka and he was in the, under solitary confinement. And he arrived at, during that period, the first two years of Baha'u'llah's stay in the penal colony of Akka. And he lived there the rest of his life. And ultimately, uh, toward the end of his life, he was an old man, but very healthy. Uh, he asked Baha'u'llah one wish, to live only 40 days after uh, Baha'u'llah's uh, ascension, end of life on this uh, plane of existence. And indeed, uh, he lived, and on day 37 after the Baha'u'llah's passing, he contracted a ta- fever, and on day 40 he died as he had wished. Interesting. Let's give our listeners a little bit of geographical orientation. Everyone's obviously familiar with where Baghdad is, and that's where Baha'u'llah declared his mission. Then you mentioned he was exiled to Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, and Adrianople, which is now Edirn. Yes, and those the- are in the country of Turkey today. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, uh, during that in late 1800s or in, uh, any of the 1800s, they were parts of the Ottoman Empire. And then Akka, which is currently located in Israel, in northern Israel, near the city of Haifa, and very close to the Lebanese border. And it was at the time a papyrus colony during the time of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, Baha'u'llah and his entire family were as we was exiled there. I'm speaking with Jamshid Afnan, a Baha'i from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, and a descendant from the family of the Bab, the prophet founder of the Babi religion. We'll return to Jamshid in a moment. Oh, 
Welcome back to a Baha'i Perspective. I'm playing an interview with Mr. Jamshid Afnan, a Baha'i from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, and Vice President of Information Services for ISO New England, an independent system operator that coordinates, controls, and monitors the operation of the electrical power system for New England. Jamshid is a descendant from the family of the Persian prophet founder of the Babi faith titled the Bab, spelled B-A-B, which means the gate in Arabic. I asked Jamshid to describe where he grew up and what were the circumstances that brought him to the United States. I was born and raised in Shiraz, Iran. Mm -hmm. Uh, I lived in Shiraz until uh, I was about 19 years old. Uh, I'd finished high school and I worked actually sometime after that in Iran. And then in pursuit of education, uh, I came to the United States uh, attended Georgetown University, and then after that, State University of New York at Albany. The field of study I had chosen was uh, computer science and applied mathematics. And beyond that, I got a job in Western Massachusetts uh, in the, actually, business of controlling electricity, and I've been here ever since. Mm -hmm. Those 19 years that you were in Shiraz... What was it like being a Baha'i at that time? Well, the, during that time, of course, you know, I left Shiraz in uh, 1974. The persecution of the Baha'is was not overtly done by the government, even though covertly Baha'is were being pushed and bothered, but not overtly as is, as is today. However, in the school as such, uh, your classmates... Uh, it was not unusual for the classmates to give you grief. Uh, however, like any other society, you get different types of people. Not everyone were mean to Baha'is. They were, I'm referring to Muslims. There were many that were my best friends. They are still my, among my best friends. Uh, so, you know, it has a lot to do with what is in an individual's heart. Mm-hmm. Why is it that you decided to go outside Iran to get further education? The, during that time, I believe that is to be true now, there is an exam that is given to all the students in high school graduates. And I took that same exam like everybody else. And you normally, they would allow you to have 10 picks. And I picked, you know, three or four of the best schools in the country and three or four of lesser schools in the country with the assumption that if I didn't do really good, I get in the lesser schools. Unfortunately, I was not the only one doing that. A very high number of students had done just that. So my grades wasn't good enough to get into the good schools and even bad schools. Had I picked the schools middle of a road, I could have been in. However, it was this whole event was a, a God helping me out because had I stayed in Iran, uh, the turn of event would have made my life far more difficult than me moving to the United States. However, when I came to the United States in 1974, I had every intention of going back. I was here to get my education, you know, my higher education, and then return back to Iran to serve the country. Mm-hmm. Of course, in, as you know, in 1980, the Iranian revolution took place, and uh, my going back became effectively impossible. And here I am. Mm-hmm. And what would have happened to you if you had stayed in Iran at that time? Well, actually, let me change your question a little bit. Even here, 
I, I was not receiving any scholarship from the government or anybody else. I was here. I, I was be, my education was being funded by my families, by my family. My father was paying for it. However, the Iranian embassy in Washington wrote me a letter demanding that I go back. And had I gone back, most likely they would not allow me to work in my field of study, but rather they would, they would force me to change my religion if I wanted to work in my field of study. Otherwise, I could have been uh, getting a lesser job, you know, not that the jobs are lesser, but not being able to use my education to further uh, the cause of the country. Even if I wish to do it for nothing, they would not allow me to do that. And there was a likelihood that I would be put in prison and, you know, treated in a matter less than desirable. Mm. Why did they demand that you go back to Iran? They demanded for me to go back to Iran because they had gotten a report from the university I was attending that I was graduating. And the, they were looking for people with the educational background because from the Iran, right after the revolution, there was a huge amount of what is being called brain drain. Many uh, educated people left the country because they did not or they could not tolerate what was going on as a result of the revolution. Uh, among those, the Canadian government shortly thereafter made a claim that they had had the best victory uh, compared to other places in the world because 40,000 doctors and engineers that were educated by the people of Iran had moved and migrated to Canada. So they were trying to attract people back. However, that would have been conditional me uh, foregoing my fate and accepting the fate of Islam, which I do actually accept the fate of Islam. I believe Muhammad was a prophet of God. However, I believe after him there were other prophets, other manifestations, and that would have been objectionable to the authorities in Iran. And it was the Islamic revolutionary government that was demanding that you come back? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and the, by then, it was the embassy was the embassy of Iranian government that was asking me to. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I did not keep those letters. I had a frustration one night. I threw them in the fireplace. Ah. <laughs> the other thing that occurred, you know, frankly, after they gave me the letter and I decided not to respond to it, they would not allow my parents to send me money first. And then my father, who had been retired for more than a decade at that time, they decided to freeze his assets. And so he would not have any ability to get any money to me. So it, it was very difficult days uh, until uh, such a time that I got work permit in the United States and started mm -hmm. a job. So you graduated about the time the revolution occurred in Iran? The revolution actually occurred in February of 1979. I graduated in May of 1980. And it was at that point that your father's assets were frozen? My father's assets were frozen in uh, probably February, uh, March of uh, 1980. Mm. So fortunately, you were practically through your schooling. That's correct. I was through schooling and... At the State University of New York, many of the professors and my advisors knew my situation, and they allowed me to delay some things to accommodate the difficulty I was facing. Mm -hmm. So what was, the, what was your first 
job when you got out of uh, my current job actually was my first job out of college oh really i i started with the same employer however not in the same job uh, i was entry level uh, i guess you could call him you know my job title was i think uh, assistant computer scientist and i was doing development work and other you know it related work and I moved within the organization to my current job that I'm the vice president of information services for ISONU England. Mm-hmm. Now, Jamshid, I know that you have a very uh, strong interest in history. And I'm curious on why you chose the field of study you went into instead of history. Well, I, I, I like history. Uh, history is my hobby. Uh, however, uh, the field of study, what I do, I have a great deal of interest mm. in uh, computer science and it, in math. And the reality of it is that in my job, I apply very little of my math skills. And by now, it has been completely atrophied, you know, 30 years, 27 years gone by. Uh, however, my computer science skills are used to, I do enjoy that end of life. But as a hobby, I study history, both history of the world and specifically history of the Babi and Baha'i religions mm-hmm. are my major hobby. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting for mankind to repeat the mistakes that were made in the history. If one studies the history in detail, would appreciate what steps might or might not be fruitful. Uh, so that, that interests me in a secular part of it. However, as a Baha'i, I'm always interested to know in detail who, what, when, and why, like a reporter, happened. So I study the history and try to go to many sources, sometimes sources that are not even published, uh, to find out the intricate details and try in my mind, I imagine what the, an event would have been like to give me further insight to how things unfolded. And many times by studying the history, one could see why things the way they are today because the roots are back in sometimes, you know, 50 and 100 years, others maybe many hundreds of years, uh, why the conflicts exist or why the friendships exist. Mm. You had said in the secular history that you noticed that mistakes keep getting repeated and repeated. Can you give me an example of what you... Well, if one studies the history of a country of Afghanistan, you would see that the British went ahead and tried to take over Afghanistan when India was their colony. This is going back in the 1800s. And they were never successful bringing the the Afghans under control. Uh, Tribesmen were not really listening to the British the way they should have. And many uh, British soldiers were killed as a result of fighting there. And sometime later in the 1980s, the Russians made a similar attempt and it was not exactly a flying success. And now we are trying the same thing and God will know what the future of that would be like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your current history project that you're working on? One of the projects I'm working on is the... Uh, Baha'u'llah wrote certain tablets to the kings and the rulers of the world, pointing out to them uh, if they follow the way that they are doing uh, their business, you know, status quo, will cause them, will cause the people of their country, the people of the world, uh, suffering, undue suffering, uh, 
And many of these leaders did not listen to what Baha'u'llah had to say. So my interest was to go ahead and study, see what happened to those individuals and what happened to the, uh, what Baha'u'llah had prophesied. Indeed, it was not in the form of a prophecy, meaning that the end would be determined, but rather Baha'u'llah pointed out to him the shortcomings in their ways. If they continued, the outcome of that would be and the, among the more uh, easy predictions or big predictions were the prediction of the events of World War I and World War II. Uh, indeed, if mankind had changed the way, its ways uh, in 1800s, you know, maybe five or six decades before World War I, uh, between the two world wars, uh, 100 million people were killed. A civilian and military. This is the combined number of individuals that between were, the world wars, meaning including both world wars. Oh, including wars. both world wars. Okay. Not be- between. I'm sorry, poor choice of words. That's fine. World War One plus World War Two combined was about 100 million casualties, and that might have been uh, possible to be avoided. God had given mankind a way out of that dilemma. However, uh, the pride of certain rulers did not allow that to occur. Mm-hmm. And of course, among the recipients of the tablets of Baha'u'llah in this regard were Kaiser Wilhelm I, the emperor of Prussia and Germany, uh, and the Queen Victoria of England. And uh, I guess Baha'u'llah wrote a tablet. Uh, tablet, by the way, in this sense means like a letter uh, to the leaders of the, of the United States which arrived here right after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, two other warring parties were the Sultan Abdul Aziz. Uh, he was recipient of three different tablets, him and his ministers. And who is he? He was the emperor of the um, uh, Ottoman Empire. As you know, the warring parties in World War One, the Ottoman Empire, the German-Prussian Empire, were all side together, and of course the French and the British were on the other side, and the French uh, Emperor Napoleon III received uh, two tablets from Baha'u'llah addressing some of the issues at hand. Mm -hmm. And among other predictions was that the demise of the uh, Napoleon III himself was again, Baha'u'llah had pointed out to him and asked him to change his ways for the sake of his people. However, he chose not to do that, and within a span of very short years, two or three years, his emperor was lost, and he himself ended up dying. And even in his deathbed, he was begging, or he was thinking of the last battle that he shouldn't have lost, and he lost. And he turned to his doctor, and in French said, meaning, uh, were you at Sedan, even though the doctor was a British doctor, <laughs> and he couldn't have possibly been there. Mm. He was suffering in his own self. Yeah. And what was Napoleon doing to his people that was against the principles that Baha'u'llah was trying to espouse? Well, Napoleon, he was pride-strucken, and that was, his number one problem was his pride. And the net result of his, and he considered himself to be the most powerful man on earth. I, I'm sure some of the uh, 
history buffs are well aware that he, even his misadventures caused many deaths in Mexico because Emperor Maximilian was really propped up by his military. And when Napoleon pulled the plug on supporting Maximilian, Maximilian was uh, put to death by the Federalist Juarez in Mexico. So his misadventures had carried as far as here, and he uh, had a war in, of course, with the Russians, which he soundly beat the Russians. Uh, and he, he was the one who instigated the war with the Prussia then. Uh, Wilhelm I was the king of Prussia at that time, and there was no reason for anybody to believe that the Prussians would have won the war, which in, in a span of days, frankly, they end up winning the war, and that brought the end of the Napoleon. Mm. And you said that Baha'u'llah also wrote to Kaiser Wilhelm. Yes, Kaiser Wilhelm was the fellow that won the, the war, and after that, he actually celebrated becoming the uh, Kaiser or Emperor Wilhelm I because the German princes joined forces with the Prussians, so he became Kaiser. And he celebrated that in Versailles, which was the palace that was uh, Napoleon III's palace. And on the tablet, Baha'u'llah wrote to him, he predicted that if he doesn't change his ways, the reference was the uncontrolled buildup of the military forces and the unjust taxes that were applied to the people of all parties concerned, including Germans, uh, would have caused uh, problems. And ultimately, the Baha'u'llah's prediction was World War I and World War II, that uh, the tablet to the Kaiser was sent to him in 1870s, probably 40 years prior to, more than 40 years prior to World War I. Mm. Now, Baha'u'llah uh, had a son, Abdu'l-Baha. Did he also have some predictions about World War I and World War II? Abdu'l-Baha, directly, yeah. he did not have any prediction about the War I and World War II. However, just prior to World War I, uh, there were many Persians or other Easterners and who had gone for a pilgrimage, who had gone to the presence of Abdu'l-Baha. He sent them all to uh, Haifa, Israel, and to Akka. Haifa and Akka, Israel, mm -hmm. and he sent them back uh, to their home countries. And actually, any of the people that were staying there, to the extent possible, he sent them back. And he purchased the supplies, meaning wheat and barley, uh, to be used for animal feed or bread, and stored it just prior to breakout of the hostilities in World War I. Of course, at that time, Haifa was a part of the Ottoman Empire. And the, ultimately, the Ottomans wanted to put Abdu'l-Baha to death. And the governor of that area uh, had threatened Abdu'l-Baha, which ultimately was not successful. And uh, the British troops freed up the Holy Land, including Haifa and Akka. Why did they want to kill Abdu'l-Baha? The reason is are actually unclear. However, I believe the individual was very jealous of Abdu'l-Baha. He had threatened Abdu'l-Baha in the past earlier, and, Abdul and his threat was that he's trying to unite. That is what he told Abdu'l-Baha at the dinner table, that I'm trying to unite Ottoman Empire. And Abdu'l-Baha smiled and says, 
So am I. I'm trying to unite all of mankind. <laughs> you said that Baha'u'llah also wrote to Queen Victoria. That's correct. And Baha'u'llah actually to Queen Victoria, uh, he wrote and he praised her because just prior to that, uh, the British government, with the help of the British, mainly enforcing the stop of the slave trade, uh, and Baha'u'llah effectively uh, praised the efforts of England for stopping the slave trade worldwide uh, and helping mankind get rid of its, this, this, this shameful act that uh, was being appropriate was being performed throughout the world and predicted that the British monarchy will survive uh, much longer than others, as we see it has survived. Mm -hmm. And in addition to banning slavery in their own country, what did, they, what did England do? As you know, England had a very <clears throat> powerful navy during that era. And the, with their naval forces, they started searching uh, slave ships and if they found them, they returned the slaves and they, they prisoned the captain. Basically, they, not only they banished slavery in the country of England, they banished slave shipment, which was the, the act that would have brought the slavery, slave business to a halt. Mm. And you said that Baha'u'llah wrote to the President of the United States. This was actually to the leaders of the United States. Oh, okay. And the detail of that tablet right now is, escapes me. So, Any other leaders that Baha'u'llah wrote to? Uh, Baha'u'llah wrote, of course, to Nasser Din Shah, the monarch of uh -huh. Iran. Can you tell us the story of how that letter was delivered? The Baha'i faith at that time was an outlawed religion in Iran. And as we discussed earlier, Babis and the Baha'is were fiercely uh, persecuted by the government. So Baha'u'llah's tablet to Nasser Din Shah, which is probably, its translation is over 100 pages long. It is not a two paragraphs. Could not be simply mailed. So a certain young uh, individual who had actually not been a, a much diligent believer most of his life, and we could spend a, hours discussing the, the, the life of, uh, his title is Badi, uh, his uh, name was Mirza Bozorg Khorasani, or Mirza Bozorg Neishaburi, uh, discussing how his transformation took place, which probably would be outside of the scope of this discussion, mm -hmm. but suffice it to say he volunteered to take the tablet of Baha'u'llah to the presence of the king. And uh, the tablet had been written earlier, but he had been staying until the time that he volunteered. And this uh, very difficult mission was given to him. And he took the tablet. Uh, and actually, Abdul Baha had asked the person that was delivering the tablet to him. He was staying right outside of Haifa in Israel at the time to give him some money and other supplies. However, he didn't wait. He could not wait. And on foot and by himself, he started walking toward Iran. Of course, the distances we are talking about is maybe 15 to two, 1,500 to 2,000 miles apart. He ultimately made it to Iran. And when he made it to Iran, the, the, the king, he went to the royal hunting grounds dressed in beautiful white robe. 
and riding a white horse. This is the Shah. No, no, this is Badi. Oh, really? The Shah was going going hunting oh. with the normal lo- royal hunting party. So Badi obtained a horse and obtained rode. a horse and put on white clothing, head to toe, uh, to make himself stand out. And he was his actually photographs are in existence of what what happened to Badi. And uh, when Shah got close to him, he approached the Shah with the tablet that Baha'u'llah had given him and put the tablet in the hand of the Shah. Of course, when Shah came to a realization that who the tablet was from, and he had the Badi taken prisoner, and the details of what happened to him actually was not known, not being for the one of the people that tortured him. He told the story uh, to a, another person, and that person ultimately became friends of Abu Baha and wrote a letter to Abdul Baha describing in detail what had happened to Badi. Making a long story short, Badi was taken and tortured. Uh, they, and they, they, the aim of the torture was for him to tell, to tell them who the other Baha'is might be. Uh, and he told them that he didn't know anybody. Ultimately, uh, uh, he was put to death under torture. And during the torture, instead of showing any signs of pain, uh, he would uh, laugh as they did different things to him, which had uh, aggravated his torturers. Uh, and the cause of his death was actually the aggravation that they had. They ended up hitting him with the rifle bot in the head and caused his death. Mm. And they were so sure that they're going to break him that uh, they took a photograph of him that is in existence today, uh, sitting with the tools of torture, which was branding iron as such, uh, in, his, in front of him and the torturer standing in the background just prior to uh, torturing Badi. Mm. Uh, the Badi, uh, when he received the tablet, of course, what Nasser Din Shah did with the tablet is very interesting. Uh, he gave the tablet to the leading cleric of Iran to answer to that tablet. And it is very interesting, when you read the tablet, Baha'u'llah is really not talking to Nasr the Shah, he's talking to clerics. So Baha'u'llah knew exactly what the Shah is going to do with the tablet when he, the tablet was written. And the, the cleric had the tablet for a while, and then he did not produce an answer for the Shah. And the Shah insisted, it actually gives one a glimpse of how powerful the clerics were in Iran, the, when Shah insisted on receiving some type of answer, said this tablet has no answer. And if you wish, uh, if you need an answer, I will have you replaced by somebody else who can run the country the way it should be run. So there was no answer ever produced yeah. to the tablet. Mm. Jamshid, thank you very much. This was very interesting. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jamshid Afnan, a Baha'i from Wilbraham, Massachusetts, and Vice President of Information Services for ISO New England, an independent system operator that coordinates, controls, and monitors the operation of the electrical power system for New England. Jamshid is a descendant from the family of the Persian prophet founder of the Babi faith, titled the Bab, spelled B-A-B, which means gate in Arabic. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, 
or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Swimming 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.